0: I'm Mudassar Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. Today we are joined by Dr. Mahathir Mohamed. It's safe to say that he's one of the most notable political figures Malaysia has seen since its independence from Britain in 1957. As you may know, Dr. Mahathir served as the Prime Minister of Malaysia from 1981 to 2003, and then returned to power in 2018 until his resignation last year, which shocked many. Today we have the pleasure to hear more about his life and extraordinary career, at the center of Malaysian politics, and also how his legacy as the longest-serving head of state shaped modern Malaysia. Dr. Mahatsir, please allow me to welcome you formally for joining us here today. With your surprise comeback, in 2018 you have been ruling Malaysia sometime with during every single decade since the 80s what would you say is the greatest lesson you have learned about political campaigning
1: well when you are an elected figure there is nothing you do that is not exposed to criticism the opposition will always criticize you whether you have done something right or wrong, because it is their duty to demonize you in order that they will be the ones uh, who uh, will win the hearts and minds of the people. So I have accepted that, that when I am when I became Prime Minister, then I will be subjected to all kinds of uh, uh, accusations, whether they are true or not. And uh, I have to live with it and maybe try to handle it.
0: Thank you. Um, I have come to learn that politics in Malaysia is anything but ordinary. Whilst our politicians may get into heated arguments, in Malaysia, things often end up at a different level. There have been trials, accusations, kidnappings. It certainly seems there's never a boring day in Malaysian politics. Is this something that keeps drawing you back into the political limelight?
1: well i have come back because there is a lot of people there are lots of people who came to see me asking me to do something Uh, meaning to say to help them because they are faced with a problem which they cannot could not resolve so they came to see me and say please do something of course initially do something meant i will try to talk to the to whoever is running the country, the prime minister. But uh, when that has uh, no, that produces no result, then eventually I was persuaded to actually uh, mount a campaign against him by setting up my own party. Uh, and as you know, I, uh, I was quite successful in that. Uh, having uh, decided to work with the opposition we actually defeated the uh, VN Party, which has ruled the country for more than 60 years.
0: In 2018, I mean, moving on on that note, you formed an unlikely alliance with the opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim, after decades of rivalry, including accusations of corruption and, and his imprisonment. After all this, Anwar publicly declared that he fought against you but had come to accept that you were the best man to lead Malaysia. Now, what suddenly changed and how is your current relationship with Anwar after the fall of the Pakatan-Harapan Alliance of Hope Coalition? Also, if not Anwar, do you see any other young politicians on the horizon who would be well-equipped to lead Malaysia through the 21st century?
1: Anwar was in jail at that time. Although he considered himself to be the leader of the opposition, but being in jail, he was not able to be active in organizing the campaign against the government. So whether he liked it or not, uh, I was the only person who could lead the opposition. Uh, they acknowledged that uh, I would be able to attract support from the indigenous people, the Malays. They will not support the opposition because they see the opposition as a coalition of uh, Non Malay party and Anwar was not accepted as a Malay leader. So while he was in jail, the opposition uh, decided to name me as the potential uh, prime minister. I am quite sure that had he been out of jail at that time, he wouldn't have tolerated me as a candidate for prime minister. He would want to be the prime minister. But unfortunately, Every time he led the opposition, the opposition couldn't win. But when I came in, I brought in along with me a lot of my supporters, and these supporters were able to tilt uh, the balance, so that the opposition uh, actually succeeded in overthrowing the the government of tatu Sri Najib.
0: What is your view on? who is in a good position to lead Malaysia from the younger generation of politicians? Do you see any hope? Do you see any rising stars? Do you see any, any, any young Mah- Dr. Mahatis on the horizon? What do you see as a future hope?
1: Well, when I became Prime Minister for the second time, I, was, uh, I wanted to attract younger people. And among the young people was one, uh, Said Sadiq. Uh, he was 25 years old but I uh, chose him to be a minister in the government. He looks like he has a good potential, very uh, well able to, to speak and to lead, and he had ideas. I thought that he would be in future, maybe a long time yet, but in future, he would be a good leader. But uh, beyond him, there were very few. Uh, candidates who have that kind of well figure or exposure to politics who could take over the job of becoming prime minister of malaysia
0: understood thank you um when you came back to power in 2018 you declared that your government would restore the rule of law and ensure that the ousted prime minister Najib Razak is held accountable for millions of hundreds of millions of. Of dollars that went missing from the state investment fund that he oversaw, known as the 1MDB scandal. Last Thursday, news reported that the government failed to prove the cash seized from his residence is linked to 1MDB. What was your reaction to that
1: ruling? Well, uh, the court found, you know, the court is very particular about docu- documentary proof. It's very difficult to get documents to show that the money was from uh, what source so the government failed to uh, produce the documents necessary but the thing is that if it is not from one mdb the question arises where is it from how does the prime minister get 115 million ringgit for himself a prime minister has no right to have that much money so the question now is where did he get the money if it's not from one mdb i think Prosecutors should then go and ask him to prove that the money is that he got it legitimately. So that has not been done. How is it that this Prime Minister has so much money? He must have come from somewhere. It may be a gift, it may be stolen, whatever. But you have to prove if you have money. The question is whether you have paid tax on the money or not because you have to pay income tax. So there are many questions left uh, open because of the decision of the court uh, that the government has not proven 100% that the money comes from 1MDB. But I still believe that it came from 1MDB. In February
0: 2020, less than two years in power after the unprecedented victory in the 2018 general election, you resigned. A move that shocked many and resulted in international media outlets speculating on what really happened in in the government. The political crisis that followed is still ongoing. Can you tell us a bit about these events and what led to the fall of the coalition and the following political turmoil?
1: Well, the government I led was a multiracial government. It is not dominated by the indigenous Malays. So a lot of uh, Malays felt very unhappy about that, and they managed to persuade some of my own supporters to to, uh, leave the government party and join with the opposition. Uh, I I objected to that. I told them, let's wait, let's see what happens. But uh, they couldn't wait. They passed a motion saying that uh, they would leave the government party. Now, if they leave the government party together with another faction, from the Justice Party, there would be, the government would have lost its majority and therefore it would not be the government. And if it is not the government, I couldn't very well be the prime minister. But before that happened, I felt that since my own party had no faith in me, uh, I decided that I should resign as the chairman of the party. But of course if i resign as the chairman of the party it follows that i would also not be the prime minister so i resigned from the chairman of the party with the implication that i would resign also from being prime minister but in any case uh, the night after that uh, members of my party and uh, from the uh, justice party decided to leave the government party, meaning to say that the government lost its majority because they want to join with the opposition and form a new coalition. This is the backdoor government that they invited me to lead them, but I refuse. I said that I have made a pledge to the people to go against uh, the previous government. Now you're asking me to work with the government that we defeated. That I couldn't accept. So I told them I would not be the Prime Minister, in which case, of course, the president of my party decided that he would be the Prime Minister. That is how the, uh, the new coalition uh, became came into power.
0: During President Joe Biden's election campaign, you voiced your support for him, saying that the re-election of Trump would have been a disaster. You stated that with Biden, we can expect improved ties between the United States and Asia and him to end a silly trade war with China. You also mentioned that whilst China has not treated Muslims well, Malaysia cannot confront the economic powerhouse, but has to be very careful with how we deal with China. Now, under Biden, are you expecting the United States to take a larger role in condemning China's human rights violations against the Muslim Uyghur minority in in Xinjiang?
1: Well, uh... I expect uh, Biden to be different from Trump. Trump knows nothing about the East. Biden had experience as uh, a vice president before. Uh, he was traveling around, he knew the East quite well. So I expect him to be more reasonable and not uh, take uh, decisions like Trump, which to me does not seem to, to result from deep thinking about the consequences of what he has decided. So I expect that Biden would not just have a confrontation with with the Chinese. There should be some dialogue with the Chinese. I myself don't believe in confrontation, in having a fleet uh, sent into the South China Sea to show strength, because that is provocative. And if there is any accident, It might lead to war, and war is no solution to all this problem.
0: Thank you. Malaysia has long been a preferred destination for Rohingya refugees who have been fleeing Myanmar after the 2017 military-led crackdown. The treatment of Rohingya has divided ASEAN with its two Muslim majority members, Malaysia and Indonesia, criticizing the Buddhist majority, Myanmar. Now with COVID-19 and the current Prime Minister of Malaysia, Muhyiddin Yassin, has stated that Malaysia cannot take any more Rohingya refugees. What are your views on this? Mm.
1: Well, we have had some experience with Vietnam, for example. uh, When the Vietnamese ran away from their country, the first place they went to was to Malaysia and we resettled them in third countries. Uh, We would be happy to resettle the Rohingyas but our capacity is limited. We already have 7 million foreign work workers in this country, foreign migrants to this country. We cannot handle them. They need to be fed, their children need to go to school. All this is a cost to Malaysia. So up to this point, yes. But we have any more, I think uh, our system will break down. So we, while we can be hospitable, But there is a limit to being hospitable. Any country will have some limit.
0: Thank you. You, You've had uh, such a long and illustrious career. And if it wasn't for you, Malaysia wouldn't have become a leading country within the OIC and and Southeast Asia. If you you were to look back at your career, what is the one thing that you're most proud of? And if you could do something again, what is the one thing you might do differently?
1: Well... uh, It was very tricky, but the most important thing is to keep the country stable and peaceful. Only with stability and peace can we develop the country. I was able to keep the country more or less stable and peaceful. Uh, We dealt with uh, opposition uh, attacks against us. We were able to convince the people that we can provide good governance to the point where for five elections that I led, we won with a two-thirds majority.
0: And what is the one thing, Doctor, that you might do differently?
1: Well, I'm (laughs) not very good at choosing my successors. Every time I choose a good successor, it turns out to be bad.
0: (laughs) In, In 2018, your historic win ousted Biet, coalition which is in power for 60 years. Since Malaysia's independence independent from Britain in 1957, there are new multi-ethnic coalitions forming. Many have high hopes for political direction for your country. Your involvement was credited in mobilizing many ethnic Malay voters to back multi-ethnic coalitions. With going pressure for the current government to call a snap election, how do you see the role of identity politics in a racially divided country like Malaysia impacting election outcomes? Well,
1: we are a multi-racial country with three different major races living in this country. The worst thing that can happen is a division between rich and poor. As you know, even in single ethnic countries, a division between rich and poor, a big division, disparity would lead to uh, resentment and maybe even violence. Uh, we've seen this in the revolutions in countries of Europe because of the disparity. But when that disparity is not only between rich and poor, but the rich happen to be one race, the poor happens to be another race, then the potential for violence is still is much greater. So I saw this thing and I felt that uh, we cannot change the race of people. They want to be Chinese, they want to be Indians, they want to be Malays. But what we can change is to reduce the disparity between rich and poor so if we can reduce that then the animosity will be lessened that is what we have tried over many years but it's not been easy
0: thank you only months after your resignation you formed a new political party homeland fighters party implying that you are nowhere near stepping away from the political agenda it's hard to find another head of state who would have served longer than you have when you were elected as prime minister last time, you were in fact the world's oldest serving state leader. Now at the age of 95, are you hoping to become prime minister one more time?
1: No, not to become prime minister. But on the other hand, I have a lot of people who come to see me and asking me to help, to do something. And they believe that I could provide the answers. So they want me to be involved. I can not tell them, look, I'm old. Uh, you should go somewhere else. They would think of me as being a very selfish person. That I cannot do. So when they asked me to be involved in setting up a new party, I did. I had to lend my my fairly good image uh, for the party so that the party gains uh, a lot of support. That is why I'm involved, because people do not want to leave me alone.
0: Now, um, thank you for, for answering my questions. We're now gonna move on towards taking some questions um, from some of the audience members. And um, I'd like to welcome um, Shazad Bhatti, a Pakistani-American who was once appointed as Director of Investments Division at Malaysia's Khazana National Wealth Fund. He is now running a global education enterprise based in the United States. Welcome, Shahzad.
1: Uh, as and a very good evening to you. Uh, Thank you for taking the
0: time to speak with us. Um, I, I just, if I may, just build on uh, what Madasser just said. I was a young uh, graduate student studying at Harvard. And the reason I was so taken by Malaysia in particular is your, was actually you had written about the role of Islam uh, as as a pathway forward, as a, as a means to progress and not a pathway backward. And I was quite taken by your, uh, by your philosophy at the time. And that brought me to Malaysia. I, I'm curious, though, uh, you know, it's been, you know, you've had a good 50 odd years in public life. Um, and you you mentioned that you've had
1: challenges finding successors. Uh, are you optimistic about the future of the country? And if so, why? Well, I wish I can be uh, certain about the future of the country. But I see that the the people have now uh, taken to democracy in the wrong way. Since uh, in a democracy, anybody can make a bid to become the prime minister. So everybody is forming some little parties and they are fighting each other. And what will happen is that none of these small parties can form a, a good government because they are not dominant. You need, uh, in a democracy, you need two parties. either either one could win or lose. But when you have 30 parties and they all uh, have small followings, they would never be able to get enough seats in parliament to form a government. So what will happen is that they would try to form some kind of post-election coalition. And post-election coalitions are always very big because the small party can threaten the government, will pull out if you don't give us this or that. So that is not something good. What I see in the future is that, even if we have elections now, uh, we will have that kind of situation where there are many small parties uh, contesting against each other, and none of them would be dominant, none of them would be able to the shots so to speak and they would have to form coalitions of convenience which would be very weak so on that i feel that uh, the future is not so good
0: next i'd like to welcome rutaba dare who is a project country coordinator for the oic youth forum based in karachi she's also regional chair for asia for the International Association of Political Science Students. Over to Ritabha.
1: Thank you, Mudassar, and thank you, Dr. Matthew, for doing this for us. Uh, My question for you is the following. For someone to return to the front seat of politics as a prime minister after having around 15 years
2: in between, You were able to convince some of the critics and appeal to the Malaysians from different generations, uh, even mobilizing young people amidst the call for change.
0: What is your secret for staying relevant in the Malaysian political scene?
1: Well, actually it is not me so much as the government. We have a rotten government and people want to get rid of the rotten government. They supported us, not because they love us very much. They find that we are a better alternative to the rotten government that was running the country at the moment so to get rid of that rotten government they supported us but uh, it is really a question of strategy which one is uh, better you want to uh, stay with the rotten government or you have you want to change they opted for change
0: is there a secret that you think is important for people in public life is there some principles that you abide by in public life that you think have served you well and that you would impart onto others?
1: Well, I think that uh, public uh, officers uh, must devote their life to serving the people. But when they think about themselves, they think that the authority or the power given to them is for them to abuse, then they should be got rid of. So that's the only thing that I believe in, that when I became prime minister and became prime minister for 22 years, it is because I spent a lot of time serving the country, serving the people, building the country and making it strong. And and if they repeatedly vote for me, it is not because of me, it is because of what I've done. If I fail to deliver, I don't think I will be re-elected five times with the two-thirds majority.
0: The next question is from Sulim Mahamou, who is a French-Algerian living in London and executive director for a London-based investment firm. Welcome, Sulim.
2: Thank you so much, Moudassar. I mean, I've read your biographies, uh, I've read your books, and uh, Everyone knows the the illustrious leader, but uh, when you read your books, we see, obviously, a very dignified man. Uh, There are plenty of anecdotes which which show how principled and how dignified the life you have led. Uh, For instance, in 1989, when you had a heart surgery uh, and a heart attack, you chose to be treated in Malaysia by Malaysian doctors like every ordinary Malaysian. Uh, you didn't choose to fly to London, Switzerland, or even to to Singapore. And the funny anecdote is apparently Nikwanu wanted to send you Malaysian doctors actually to treat you, uh, and you even refused uh, because it wouldn't be available to ordinary Malaysians. Uh, other there are plenty of other examples. In, in, even recently, when you were ninety four. Uh, uh prime minister, you outworked your younger colleagues who complained about your work ethics or even uh, and there are anecdotes in your personal life as well. You had five children of your own, but you still went out and raised two orphans, uh, which is extremely noble of you. And my question is the following. What would be your advice to us as a younger generation in terms of personal advice, general advice to lead a principled and dignified life?
1: But the first thing is you must always fight against selfishness, doing things only for your own good. When you are an officer, public officer, you must think about the people you serve and you want to, you must do things that are good for them. Maybe not so good for you, but it must be good for them. But strangely, when you do that, you are serving yourself also because then you become popular and you get the support. But once you think only about abusing the power that you have been given, uh, that means that your period will be very short as as a public uh, officer. So I would like to say this, that we must always think about our country and our people and our religion. I find that uh, Uh, we all call ourselves muslims but there are lots of things that islam tells us to do which we do not do and in fact we do against what is taught by islam that is why we are in deep trouble all over the world
0: we have a question here from abida who wants to get your thoughts on the future of democracy in underdeveloped countries
1: Well, democracy is an invention by men, and of course, inventions by men are never perfect. Democracy is not perfect, but uh, as far as we can make out, it is the best system so far invented by men. So we favor democracy, but our interpretation may be different from other people's interpretation of uh, democracy. What is important about democracy is the ability to change government merely by voting. That is a great uh, thing.
0: We have another question from someone who would like you to speak to the importance of building and maintaining institutions in a country as it develops.
1: Well, there are institutions and institutions, and over time we have more of them, but they serve a certain purpose. For example, when we talk about the rule of law, we have to believe in it, we have to support it. It's no good saying that we want we want laws, but then we don't respect the law. For example, people in power tend to forget that the law does not allow them to do certain things, but because they are in power, they will do it. So when you have an institution it is important that you respect it, you adhere by, by the, the terms of that institution. Uh, we have a lot of institutions, of course, and uh, some of them uh, we just create, but we don't follow. You don't follow, you don't get the benefit that the institution is supposed to give you. Um,
0: We have a question here. I'm from Singapore. What would you see as an ideal relationship with Singapore where both sides can maximize benefits for each other? This is from somebody called Omar Al Atas.
1: We think we should uh, treat each other as two different countries because their situation is not the same as the situation in Malaysia. Singapore is a predominantly Chinese state. And of course their interest for, them, for themselves. We have to think about ourselves. Just imagine in 1926, almost 100 years ago, the British made an agreement to sell raw water to Singapore at the rate of three cents per thousand gallons. And they insist that today we should sell at the same rate. I don't think it's logical. Nothing can be bought with three cents. But if Singapore, uh, Singapore insists that they pay only three cents when they know very well that when they get water from us and they uh, filter it and make it portable, they were selling it at $17 per thousand gallons. Imagine the amount of money they were making from our water. We are poorer than them. We are subsidizing them. But until now, their tactic is not to talk about it, not to negotiate, just say uh, we don't have time, we have other things to do. So it's an unfair uh, relation. So apart from that, uh, we know Singaporeans, they are the same people as ourselves. I was uh, educated in Singapore. I had many friends in Singapore but that personal friendship is one thing but political relation is quite another thing i think that singapore should realize that you can't expect a poor country to subsidize your good life
0: we have a a question here from a professor of islamic law who wants to know about the destination of an islamic society like malaysia whether malaysian society has reached the level of desired by Islam and the rest of the Muslim societies and section follow does it have more to do in comparison with other welfare states? And if so, what more do you think needs to
1: happen? We are Muslims. We pray, we fast, we pay uh, the zakat, and we perform the Hajj. But beyond that, we are not very Muslim. If you read the Quran in a language that you understand, the Quran tells you what is right and what is wrong what you should do, what you shouldn't do. But those things we ignore. For example, the Quran says that you cannot kill a person, whether Muslim or non Muslim, you cannot kill. Killing a person is like killing the whole of humanity. But here we are very busy killing each other. So we're not following the teachings of Islam. The the Quran says that Muslims are brothers. We are not behaving like brothers and the quran also says when you judge judge with justice we don't
0: now i i had the the pleasure of visiting malaysia on on many 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 occasions um and one of the things that i have also noticed is that the the malaysian the malay muslims are 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 very concerned about the the the, the islamic world as a whole and and play a very active role um what would you envisage um Malaysia's role to be in the Muslim world? What would you like that to be?
1: I think we should uh, uh, understand the true teachings of Islam as found in the Quran. What we are doing is that we follow the interpretation of various people and we get divided into different sects. That is wrong. If you go back to the Quran, there is only one Quran. We don't have two or three different Quran, only one. So when we go, we are guided by this one Quran, I think will be e- it will be easier for us to uh, be together, to regard each other as brothers, and also to uh, take our portion of the wealth of this world as promised in the Quran.
0: Well, there's another uh, a question from one of the participants actually, which is that, In your long career, what have you learned about female leadership in politics, in Muslim countries?
1: In Malaysia, almost from the very beginning of our independence, we had a woman minister. That was way ahead of others than other Muslim countries. We have always treated women well. And today, women are much better educated than before. During the British time, they were not given uh, good education, but now they are, and they are holding high posts in the government. There are ministers in the cabinet. There are also women who uh, had become the chief secretary of various ministries and all that. But of course, their numbers are not as big as the men. But over time, I think they will uh, catch up and the numbers would not not be dominant by women, but there will be a fair distribution between men and women.
0: Many of the participants want to know about your view on the most likely outcome for the Palestine problem. What do you desire as a solution and what do you think is likely to actually happen?
1: I have studied this issue and I find that war means different things to different people but the normal idea is that you fight a war in order to win and when you win then you can dominate the uh, against, over the loser and maybe even become friends that is what we see in the last war where uh, the uh, british and french fought against the germans but they 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 won but they now become quite friendly with the Germans. The same thing happens with the Japanese and the Americans. Uh, The Japanese found that they have lost the war and uh, the time was for living in peace. But in some, among some people, war is about taking revenge for, for whole generations. The next generation, they must fight against the enemy. You identify the enemy forever you want to fight them because they they kill your people so you want to kill their people and because you kill their people they kill our, our people and so we kill their people and this will go on forever uh, you remember the when islam came to the to the ignorant arabs these were different tribes they were always fighting each other uh, each tribe has got its enemy why do they fight? Well, they are the enemy. Well, but why are they the enemy? Well, my grandfather fought against, against them. My great-grandfather fought against them, so they are enemy. So we must fight against them. It's not about winning. It's not about establishing peace. It's about killing your enemy. And I'm afraid that the same idea prevails now, that we are not going to fight to win a war. It is just to take, uh, well, revenge against the people who have been uh, cruel towards us. And they will then commit more things against us and we will fight against them forever.
0: So how do we break this, this cycle, vicious cycle?
1: Education, we have to go back to the idea of war. War is fought in order to achieve victory and that after that then there will be peace but if you think that war is for you to kill the, the enemy and for the enemy to kill you and therefore you can kill the enemy and the enemy kills you that is different that is about revenge
0: thank you for that um dr martha we, somebody here wants to know You mentioned earlier about providing a fair share of wealth for all races in Malaysia. How do you see the future of policies such as affirmative action and the new economic policy, given its record and implementation?
1: Well, when we introduced the new economic policy and affirmative action, we thought that uh, the people we want to help were capable of uh, taking advantage of the opportunities given them. But what we didn't we realize is that their culture is different. They are not like the other people who have succeeded well, but they feel that, well, this is an opportunity given by the government for free. I can sell it. I can make money from it just by selling. And so they sold the opportunity. They sold the licenses, they sold the contracts, and as a result, other people benefited from the policy, they themselves, well, they have soon finished their money and they have made no progress. That is the problem. So when I came back as prime minister, we have to make sure that when you give opportunities to the, um, to the indigenous Malays, if they sell, then that becomes invalid. So they cannot sell. They have to try to do it by themselves. If they cannot, they can surrender it back to the government. We'll find other people.
0: Well, this is the last question now that I have for you. It's come from a, a politician in, in London called Councillor Mariam Daoud. And she wants to know simply, what advice do you have for people that may wish to follow in your footsteps?
1: I don't know what I have done, which is different. What I have done was to make possible things which other people want to do. You see, I mean, everybody wants to develop the country, but you must know how. Just introducing a policy does not bring about result. If you have a policy to develop the country, you must know how to do it. That is very important. And that comes through a lot of uh, reading, uh, learning about other countries, observing things, and uh, figuring out how you can implement the policies that you have made. And I think uh, I, I noticed that many countries have got policies, all of them want to become developed. Unfortunately, uh, between wanting and between achieving, there is a great gap. Uh, you have to know how uh i have a lot of experience running the country and in the in the beginning of course i make a lot of blunders. but uh over time i learned how to do things uh how to solve problems. then uh, things happen
0: i have a, a i'm going to ask one more question take the moderator's privilege i'm really curious to know for a person who's 95 years old you're extremely active and you've been very active and outpaced a lot of younger people and politicians. What are the lifestyle lessons that we can learn? Are there any lifestyle secrets, uh, any particular herbs, or <laughs> what can you share about, about your lifestyle that might be helpful for the rest of us?
1: A lot of people want to know what pill I took uh, in order to be like this. There is no such thing. Yes, you have to take the vitamins to supplement the needs of your body. But the most important thing is not to be overweight. Do not get fat because it places a, a strain on your heart. So keep to a reasonable weight by not eating too much, not enjoying food too much. Uh, my mother used to tell me when the food tastes nice, stop eating. It's very difficult, but <laughs> I'm just <disagreeing laughs> enough to do that. So keep your weight uh, low, be active. It's important to be active because the muscles of the body, if you don't use, they, they shrink, they lose their strength. You know, people, weightlifters and bodybuilders, they exercise and you see how, how fit, they, how well they look. But uh, whether they can last forever, I don't know. But what happens is that your muscle must be active. Yeah? So you must move about. Then the brain, that also must be active. If you stop thinking, if you go to sleep, if you don't read, you don't write, you don't argue, then the brain also shrinks.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. I, I It has been a pleasure and I'm very appreciative for, for you taking out the time to share your thoughts on on these important issues thank you oh,
1: you're welcome
0: thank you for joining us for this episode of PR Unmasked with me Madassa Ahmed by Unitas Communications I hope you've learned something valuable with this episode I certainly did we will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode stay tuned